The following message is from Grace on the Ashley Baptist Church, located in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information about Grace on the Ashley, visit graceontheashley.org. Father, again, we are just so thankful and grateful that you have allowed us to join our hearts together in your house and in this place that we call Grace on the Ashley. Father, you are a very generous God. You are a giving God. And you are a forgiving God. And Father, you have blessed us beyond what we deserve here at Grace on the Ashley. Lord, any time in our need, Father, you have provided more than what was adequate. And Father, you continue to be faithful in that aspect. And, Father, we thank you for all the people that you have brought to this place. And we thank you especially for the men who have gone before us, for the men who are here now, and also for the women, Lord, and for the children and all those who belong to you. But, Father, as, we, as Paul reminds us in this scripture, Lord, we are not to put our our trust and our confidence in just mere man. Uh, Father, you are the one who provides growth. You are the one who has endowed them with the gifts to be sowers and planters and waterers. And Father, you have given us those gifts also as individuals, all who are part of your body. For Father, you have told us that we are your field. And that we are your building. And Father, may we never forget that there is only one foundation that we put our faith and trust in. And that's the foundation of the finished work of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. For Father, he is the builder of his temple, of his church. He has set the foundation. He is also the cornerstone. And he is also the builder. And through his spirit provides gifts to, to us to be those building blocks that you mold and shape together to form your church. And, Father, our hope is this, that when you are finished with your church, may we also remember then that he is the capstone. And that, Father, that when you are finished with your church, and not until then, Lord, you will continue to build it. And you will continue to use men and women that you have gifted to spread the good news of your gospel, uh, even though it could mean separation from other believers. Uh, Father, separation is all, always painful. And, uh, Father, we, uh, we don't enjoy it at the time. But, Lord, may we never forget that when you open doors, you sometimes have to close doors also. And, Father, even though you may be closing a door for Frank and Judy's ministry here at Grace on the Ashley, you are opening a door for them also and a new endeavor that you have for them. So, Father, it is our prayer that you will go before them as you, we know that you are and, and have people join with him to be workers with him to, to sow and to plant and to water that you may harvest. And, Father, as he leaves, Lord, help us to remember also that even though that door is closed here, that you are opening a door for us here at Grace on the Ashley. May we see that as an exciting opportunity to see and remember how you've been so faithful to us 
and that you will continue to do so, and that you have a harvest for us also. So again, Father, thank you for who you are. Thank you for your faithfulness. And thank you, Father, that you are a God who is still doing new things. Father, do a new thing in this church today. Be with your faithful servant, Frank, as he presents his word. May it move out in power, Lord, and may it change lives, and may it grow your kingdom. We'll do it all for your glory, and we ask these things in your son's holy and precious name. Amen. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. God bless the reading of his word. Our tongues are a display of... Well, we do have the slide. This is the tweet I saw from Babylon B this week. Man only serving in church sound booth to avoid the greeting time. See, now that's me. I'm not supposed to be here. My second ministry would be back there behind you, avoiding the greeting time by running the sound system. That's what we introverts do. And sometimes you'll see once someone around the greeting time that doesn't necessarily, um, it doesn't interest them to talk a whole lot. Uh, Some people want to talk more than others. And uh, now, I said that's me. I don't have the alien T-shirt like that guy had. But other than that, sometimes God has a sense of humor when he puts somebody where it's not their natural state to do something. Our tongues are a display of our spiritual condition. And in this day and age of uh, rampant verbal abuse, it's just epidemic. Uh, Twitter and all kinds of social media, where self-proclaimed teachers engage in all sorts of just heated religious discussions. Isn't it interesting? I don't know if you follow any social media. I don't do a whole lot, but isn't it interesting how... Just the most uneducated, non-religious person becomes a theologian when they want to get in a discussion about about theology. Self-proclaimed teachers. And for those of us who fall into some of that category, this passage is good for us today. We've all had occasions, I'm sure, when you've thought something, and then you quickly said something, and then your next thought was, oops, I shouldn't have said that, and you want to grab that word and bring it back in, but it's too late. You can't do it. 
Of course, this has been an issue for a very long time, back in Genesis 3. The very first sin after the fall was the sin of the tongue. You remember when Adam said, That woman you gave me made me do it. And so we had a couple of sermons the last couple of weeks uh, out of chapter 2, at the end of chapter 1, and out of the end of chapter 2, that our actions reveal our heart condition. And then James gets a little bit more specific here in chapter 3, where our words reveal our heart condition. He's already mentioned it many, many times, so we... You knew something was coming. Verse 19 of chapter 1. Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak. Or verse 26. If anyone thinks he's religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Chapter 2. Verse 12, so speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. Speak. Talks about the tongue in verse 14 of chapter 2. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Good gracious. And he goes, he keeps on going throughout the entire book. Verse 1 of chapter 4, what causes quarrels? We quarrel. Is there any other way to quarrel except with your mouth? What causes fights among you? Verse 11 of chapter 4. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. But the one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. Verse 16 of chapter 4. As it is... You boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Chapter 5. Do not grumble against one another, brothers. I suspect grumbling is something you do with your mouth and tongue. Verse 12. But above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or any other Or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no. All five chapters of James talk about the tongue, talk about our speech. It's an important thing to him. We we saw it coming. And apparently the Jewish believers that he's writing to are having serious problems with their tongues. And when you put... All these passages together that I just shared with you, plus the passage for today, you get the impression that that early church of Jewish believers must have had some pretty interesting meetings. So he begins by warning people who desire a particular task that The sole use of the tongue is a part of the job. And so he introduces in the first two verses, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. 
But we stumble in many ways. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man. If you fall into that category, could you just raise your hand, please? Okay, Robin, you don't count. Able to bridle the whole body. It's a challenge for those of us who speak for a living. And this is not a rebuke for those who would try to be teachers. Well, it is a rebuke for try to be teachers before you're ready to be teachers. But it's a, a, a warning that many should not even become teachers in the future. It's a, it's a mistake, I think, to believe that every believer should be able to mature up to a certain point and then qualify to be a teacher at some point in their service to Christ. That's not, that's not the case. In this early church, certainly there was prestige with teachers at that time. Has been throughout the, throughout the centuries, still in some of, culture, some of our cultures here in the U.S. today. Not so much in our culture, but uh, still in some cu- cultures, the, the teacher or the preacher is raised to a, to a high level. Teacher back then was more important in that day. The early church, they didn't have Google to teach them everything. And so it was a serious, it was a significant role. And James starts with this because the tool of the trade is the tongue. My very first mission trip back in 1981 was to Haiti. And I was the I, I, I was just a minister of music that had no idea what he was doing, but I was the preacher for those couple of weeks. And, and, um, and it was amazing to me how, how they looked at me as if they esteemed me in a way that I was not used to here in the States. Then I spent several trips in Romania, and again, the Romanian church seems to esteem the uh, the, the pastor, unlike, takes place here. Now, a part of that is both of, these, both of those cultures I mentioned are coming out. A lot of those people are coming out of an orthodox tradition where the priest is placed on a pedestal. But these rabbis, these teachers in the early Jewish church that James is writing to, they were raised to a very high level, mainly because their literacy was so high. And so this was the educated person. But it can be flattering. It can be great cause for sin. And it can make you think more highly of yourself than you ought to. And so James gives us a warning here. He says, why should not many become teachers? Well, you've got a stricter judgment. The, the implication here, if there's a stricter judgment uh, for teachers, then the implication is there, there are degrees of treatment in the judgment. Adam Clark says, their case is awful. They shall receive greater condemnation than common sinners. 
They've not only sinned in thrusting themselves into that office to which God has never called them, but through their insufficiency, the flocks over whom they have assumed the mastery perish for lack of knowledge, and their blood will God require at the watchman's hand. It's a grave, grave responsibility involved in teaching others. We can lead people to truth. We can lead people to error. The elders, the writer of Hebrews talks about in Hebrews thirteen seventeen, are held accountable if they mislead others. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. And so over the years we've learned to hide that our knees are knocking and that we stand here with fear and trembling, but I can't hide it in my stomach and in my heart. It's a fearful thing. Not only is there a stricter judgment, he says, because we stumble in many ways. And notice, James says, we stumble in many ways. He's including himself here. He watched his brother, his half-brother Jesus, grow up. He may remember his own words to his brother. He may have said things to his brother before James was a believer, and he became a believer much later. He knew he might have stumbled even in dealing with his own brother. There was some redemption in all of that. Paul talks. Paul mentions him in 1 Corinthians 15, after the resurrection, Jesus, uh, Paul says in 15, verse 3, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, that he appeared to Cephas, he appeared to Peter, then to the twelve, Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James. Wasn't that a sweet reunion? Couldn't that have been a sweet reunion? Then he appeared to his brother James. Then to all the apostles, last of all, to the one untimely born, he appeared also to me. What encouragement that must have been to James to see his resurrected brother. Be careful, teachers. If I could take a little side road here, there's another point. It might relate to the Babylon Bee thing. And that is we all know what we say can cause damage in people's lives. But what about what we don't say? I'm an introvert, and and I've fooled you all for 18 years, some of you for 18 years. And although there are times when I've stumbled in my speech, I may stumble more by keeping my mouth shut. There's some of us like me who are teachers and are natural Proclivity is not giftedness in speech. Preaching is not my strength. And I don't have to tell you all that, right? 
but we're nonetheless called to proclaim the truth. We're, we're called to, to use the speech to declare our tongues, to declare God's truth. And remaining silent in other areas may be just as damaging as using our tongues as speaking tools. Keep that in mind. Then he picks up there in verse 2, we all stumble in many ways. If someone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man. Hmm. That may refer more to a mature believer, a mature Christian. We know Scripture is for reproof and for correction and for training in in righteousness. And, and, And we know that the book of James, we've seen it. Many, 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 many times throughout this entire book, that he's interested that we all be brought to maturity in Christ. We, I talked about it in my first message uh, from chapter 1, verse 4, where he says, And let steadfastness, that's the trial, steadfastness in the trials you face as believers have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing, and so he, he he may not be talking necessarily about perfection here, because I said, "Who's perfect? Raise your hand." Only one of you raised your hand today, so it's not a common thing in our church. But in that same chapter one, verse eighteen, he reminds us of the process we're in of his own will. He brought us forth by the word of truth that. We should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. He, 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 by the word of truth, he's building us and growing us and, and making us what he created us to be. So by God's grace, to say the right thing at the right time to the right person in the power of the Holy Spirit is a step toward maturity that James is talking about. He cautions us about teachers. That's the best example of the one who would use their tongue and their mouth. And it shouldn't discourage you from becoming um, a teacher or at least seeking out if that's a, a, a gift God may have given you. But you proceed with humility and you proceed with caution and you move slow toward becoming a teacher. Because we use our tongues, and they can cause a lot of damage. They're small but powerful. A human can't tame a tongue. It reveals more about us than we really want to admit in our everyday lives. There are little things, these things we call tongues, but they have great impact. Think of every broken relationship that you've had in your life. Every single broken relationship has one not included words. At the same time, remember that these words here in chapter 3 are words of grace. If God didn't love us, if God didn't care about us, He wouldn't care about how our words affected other people. So... James uses some great illustrative material 
to describe it for us. First, he describes how the tongue is powerful. We put bits in the mouths of horses so that they obey us. We guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large, driven by strong winds, guided by a very small rudder, wherever the will of the pilot directs, so also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. Horse has great power. Some of you ride. Back in 1978, Judy and I had the privilege to go to the Kentucky Derby. I was in seminary in Louisville at the time. And you think about that, how massive those thoroughbreds are. What if you got on one of those horses without a saddle, without a bridle, without a bit? Who's going to win the control battle? Unless you use that bridle, you guide the whole body of that massive beast with that little bit in his mouth. It's a small thing to control a horse. Or the rudder, you think boats back in James' day weren't very big, but in Acts, late in Acts, I can't remember what chapter, late in Acts, Luke tells us that Paul was on a ship that had 276 passengers. That's pretty good size for 2,000 years ago, I would think. Or what about today's boat? They just widened the Panama Canal because the boat, they're bigger. These ships are bigger. And they're having to deepen Charleston Harbor if somebody could ever write a check for it. Because the ships are bigger, and yet relatively small rudder guides those massive, massive ships. And at the same time, the bit in the rudder has to overcome contrary forces. James tells us the bit has to overcome the wild nature of the horse. The rudder has to fight the winds and the currents of the water. We want to move it off course. That's... That's the power of the tongue, too, he's talking about. Chuck Swindoll calls it a two-ounce slab of mucous membrane. But it's deadly. And it, too, has to overcome contrary forces because our old nature wants to come out of our mouths. Our old nature wants to control us Cause us to sin. There are circumstances around us. Think road rage. There are circumstances. How many of you actually speak in your car at somebody else who can't hear you in the car in front of you? So we need a strong hand too. An expert rider can guide that horse, and a pilot can steer that ship, but no human can tame that tongue. Only Christ can. Only He can keep us from saying the wrong things. Only He can keep us from saying the right things at the wrong time. Proverbs 18:21: Death and life are in the power of the tongue. 
And no wonder David prayed in Psalm 141, Set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Keep watch over the door of my lips. Do not let my heart incline to any evil. David knew that the heart was the key to right speech. The writer of Proverbs, you see it over and over and over. Never underestimate the power of your words. Proverbs 15.1, a soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Proverbs 12.22, lying lips are an abomination to the Lord. Proverbs 10.19, when words are many, transgression is not lacking, but whoever restrains his lips is prudent. So also the tongue there at the beginning of verse 5 is a small memory, yet it boasts of great things. One commentator suggested he's not talking about the boasts of the, the person through his tongue, but he's actually talking hypothetically, what if the tongue could boast of the great things it's done through history? What if the tongue could boast how it created the Holocaust just by using its words through a person named Hitler. You realize for every word of Hitler's book, Mein Kampf, for every word in that book, 125 people died in World War II. But the tongue could also boast that during that same time period, the great, great, Thoughtful words of a Winston Churchill helped the Allies to stand firm and win the day. The tongue could boast of a lot. Talks about the power of the tongue. Secondly, he talks about its destructive nature. How great a fire is set ablaze by such a small fire, and the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among its members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird and reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human can tame the tongue. It's a restless evil full of deadly poison. Remember all those California wildfires back at the end of last year? The Thomas Fire, they, they get names. The Thomas Fire started on December 4th. Scorched 280,000 acres across Southern California, the largest fire ever recorded in California. So large that it would engulf the entire Washington, D.C. metropolitan area. Now, no snide comments about Washington, D.C. burning down. We don't want to think about that. And most likely that fire was started by the butt of a cigarette or some human source. There's a fire in Chicago back in 1871. You heard about the lamp that started the fire in Ms. O'Leary's barn. 8.30 p.m. October 8, 1871. That fire spread 100,000 people. 1871. 100,000 people left homeless. 17,500 buildings were destroyed. 300 people died. And in 1871, it cost the city of Chicago $400 million. 
just by a spark. One word. The misuse of one word can negate all the graces in my life and your life. Tongues given to praise Him are more enthusiastic in our idol worship, isn't it? One word starts fires. Paul talked about the unrighteous in uh, Romans 3, 13 and 14. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. We know from the ninth commandment, bearing false witness. Thou shalt not bear false witness against your neighbor. Heidelberg Catechism, uh, question number 112. What is required in the ninth commandment? I must not give false testimony against anyone. Twist no one's words, not gossip or slander, nor condemn or join in condemning anyone rashly and unheard. Rather, I must avoid all lying and deceit as the devil's own works under penalty of God's heavy wrath. In court and everywhere else, I must love the truth, speak and confess it honestly and do what I can to defend and promote my neighbor's honor and reputation. So it is with the tongue. A loose tongue can ruin a reputation. It can also destroy churches and families and relationships, friendships. And James describes it here in these few verses that I just read in real vivid terms. It's a fire. It's a world of unrighteousness. Stains the whole body. Sets on fire the entire course of life. Set on fire by hell, a restless evil full of deadly poison. It stains and ruins. It's a beast that demands to be heard. Curtis Vaughn said, This means that the tongue wrongly used pollutes the man's whole personality, soils his whole nature, leaves a deadly stain upon him. It does this by permitting himself to be used as an organ for sin. A tongue can destroy a person's reputation quicker and easier than you can destroy their body. Destroy their life in any other way. Sinclair Ferguson said, Tongues are better at idolatry than doxology. Tongues that are given to, to speak words of love, but they turn around and speak words of hate, or tongues that are given to, 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 to tell the truth instead of tell lies. You've been in that setting. You've been in that setting where you're sitting around, you're talking with other people, maybe you're even guilty of this. You sit around, you're in a group, and someone mentions somebody's name, and all of a sudden all the negatives of that person starts coming out of your mouth or somebody else's mouth. Psalm 39, 1 and 3, I said, I will guard my ways that I may not sin with my tongue. My heart became hot within me as I mused. The fire burned, then I spoke with my tongue. And then he talks about untamable animals. 
Not only it's like a fire, it's like a dangerous animal. It's restless and it can't be ruled. And some are poisonous and, and, and some tongues spread poison as well. And the deceptive thing about poison is it works secretly and it works slowly. And then what does it do? It kills. How many times has a malicious person been in a conversation with, with other people and they inject that bit of poison into that conversation, hoping that it will spread and finally to get back to that person they want to get at, want to hurt You've seen poisonous tongues damage families and churches and individuals. Wouldn't it, be, would, it would seem silly if I just suggested we let a hungry lion loose in this sanctuary with all of us here today. But just as much destruction occurs from an uncontrolled tongue. He reminds us that animals can be tamed. For that matter, a fire can be tamed. Tame an animal, you get a worker instead of a destroyer. You tame a fire, you might generate some power. But a man can't tame the tongue. Only God can do that. Who hasn't had something false said by someone about you? Hey, I'm a preacher. Many, many false things have been said about me by those I've upset over the years. Sometimes I've upset them because I did something right, and sometimes I've upset them because I've made a mistake. But they'll talk about you either way. I realize that one word could destroy my ministry, so I go overboard making sure that word isn't said. You should be careful, too. It's powerful. It's destructive. And then number three, there's potential for great blessing in the tongue. Tried real hard to figure out how to get, get away from all James' negative, so try to turn this around into a positive. Potential for great blessing. Good can come as well as evil. Three ways good can come. First, positive words. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5.11, Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you're doing. And then verse 14 in that same chapter, And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. Blessing and cursing. Verse 9 and following. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. For the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brother, these things ought not to be. Shouldn't be. The last few weeks, some of you have by your spoken words, others by your written words, you've blessed and encouraged Judy and me in many, many ways. I had a conversation this week with a couple of brothers encouraging them to use their tongues to encourage others in our church body. 
And hopefully that you've, incur- you've received that encouraging word at just the right time in your life as, as we have from some of you. That time when you were down on yourself and that someone came up and spoke an encouraging word to you. That, that time you were depressed, someone came up and encouraged you. That time when you were overworked and somebody came up and encouraged you. Oh, I hope you've experienced that. We're not naturally good at this. And Paul is correct when he says, Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up. We need to be better at that. Positive words. Secondly, potential for great blessing and instruction in God's Word. Well, we've seen that there's a stricter judgment for those who would teach God's Word. So we need to get it right. Why? Because we don't like it when we're misrepresented. You think God likes it when He's misrepresented in the pulpit? Right. We can teach the truths of God's Word, and that's such a wonderful thing. Romans 10:15, and how are they to preach unless they are sent? As is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. The tongue can be used to bring us the life-changing message, the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Church history is full of, of people who brought the good news, who preached the gospel in so many amazing ways. They're the George Whitfields who came over here uh, from England. And Benjamin Franklin recorded that he heard Whitfield preach on Boston Commons to 10,000 people. He estimated there were 10,000 people and everybody heard him. He had such a magnificent voice. Even Benjamin Franklin, who never came to faith in Jesus Christ. But boy, he was amazed at George Whitfield. And then there's that Sunday school teacher, Edward Kimball, who showed up at the shoe store one day to talk to the shoe salesman, Dwight L. Moody. And he led him to the Lord right there in the shoe store. You know the rest of that story. He was actually in Chicago during that fire. Or Billy Sunday. Or Mordecai Ham, who was preaching in a field in, in North Carolina when a teenage boy showed up named Billy Graham. Got saved. That legacy gone this week. Preaching to millions and millions and millions. And it's not just the well-known preachers. We can list them all day long. But what, am I, what about my dad who sat me down one day and shared the gospel with me? People you'll never read about in the paper or your Sunday school teacher. Tongue can be used for tremendous good. How beautiful are the feet of those who bring the good news. Positive words, instruction in God's word. Thirdly, Potential for great blessing because we bless our Lord with our tongues. It's an instrument of praise and worship. Behold our God, seated on the throne. Come, let us adore Him. 
It's an instrument of praise and worship. See, believers are set apart from unbelievers in that we are able to sing about and speak about how highly we esteem the God of the universe, our Creator. We hear others speak about their relationship with God. They're speaking enthusiastically about it, and we use our tongues to sing His praise. Judy's testimony, and I've heard it many, many times over the years, it includes a story of a lady who stood up in church. It was testimony time in a, in a church service, and just, she just stood up and said, I just want to say, I love Jesus. And here's Judy in her 20s, grown up in church, been in church Sunday in and Sunday out her entire life, and said that was the very first time I heard somebody say, I love Jesus. And it changed her life forever. You never know what you're speaking about the Lord will do in someone else's life. And then there is this warning James gives us of the hypocrisy when we bless God one day and we curse someone made in the image of God the next day. This really might be the most damning of these words. You see that? With it we bless our Lord and Father and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. We're all, every single person is created in the image of God. We stood here singing praise to God this morning. Before the day is over, who will you speak negative about? That's what James is talking about back in chapter 1 and verse 8. And he says he's double-minded man and unstable in all his ways. tongue is powerful, it's destructive, and it can be used as a force for good. So how do we deal with this? How do we respond? How can I use my tongue well? Well, it's important for us to understand the source. The tongue is not the problem, really. It's, it's, it's the tool that James used in this description. The problem is the heart. And James is just reflecting words that his brother said in Matthew 12:34. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Whatever is in your heart comes out of your mouth. And you're deceived if you don't believe that. You're, you're deceived. He's talked about self-deception as well. You're deceived because salt water doesn't come out of fresh water. Olives don't come from fig trees. So you see why teaching is an issue here at the very beginning of this passage. If the heart isn't right, the teaching is at best powerless, at worst, blasphemy. 
So don't just hold your preachers accountable for their words. Hold them accountable for their hearts as well. That's why we've got to be doers of the word and not hearers only. And you too. doesn't just fall on preachers and teachers. What do your words reveal about your heart? When Jesus is Lord of the heart, he's Lord of the lips too. Remember Isaiah? I know we're way over time, I'm sorry. But you could fire me. Remind Isaiah in chapter 6. Woe is me. He, he encounters the Lord. Woe is me, for I am undone. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for... My eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And then the angel takes a burning coal and purifies those lips. And God says, who will go? And Isaiah says, here am I, send me. How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel. Oh, my What if our prayer tomorrow and the next day and every single one of us, our prayer, as soon as we open our eyes, we wake up and say, Oh, Lord, may the meditation, the words of my lips and the meditation of my heart be acceptable to you. May my words, and which is the outflow of my heart, be acceptable to you all day long. What if that was our prayer? You think about that. Let's pray. We'll sing a closing song in a moment. I encourage you... If You need to pray a prayer of repentance about how your words have been used, or if you need to, if you have questions about how Christ can control your heart in such a way that you only speak godly words, our elders will be at the back during this song, and we encourage you to make your way back there while we sing and pray with them. And then you, pr- you pray as you sing, take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to Thee. Take my words, O oh God, do it. Father, we pray that by the power of Your Spirit, You'll transform our hearts in such a way that our words will be helpful to others and pleasing to You for Your glory. In your glory alone, in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.